Hey, Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to the Peristyle Podcast. It's Keely Yor back hosting again. I'm the substitute teacher. Ryan Abraham is out on vacation. Uh, I believe I said last time he was in Scotland. He was actually in Ireland. This week he's in Scotland. So where in the world is, is Ryan San Diego is the question. But he's out on vacation and I'm filling in. We're coming to you on a Tuesday with the Peristyle Podcast. It's the eve of Pac-12 Media Day, which means that the college football season is just around the corner. Pretty crazy that we're we're getting so close to fall camp and everything starting. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for the show, drop us an email at podcast at uscfootball.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail, 424-254-9141. But today we have a great show lined up for you. we got Dan Weber on the line. Dan, how's it going? How are you doing? Doing good. Uh, looking forward to, oh, this is one of those nights where it's just almost hard to go to sleep. It's like, you know, Christmas Eve when you were a kid. Boy, it's uh, Pac-12 Media Day tomorrow, and uh, in order to get it all into one day, uh, they're off and running at 8 o'clock, and we'll still be there well past 6, so uh, going to be a, a, a big full day tomorrow, and uh, uh, the biggest uh, part of that is trying to beat traffic uh, to get into Hollywood be uh, you know in time for for uh, for the brunch I guess but uh, uh, it's gonna be interesting. It just I'm really interested in how USC handles um, coming off of a five and seven. Uh, so you know something they're totally unlike uh, unused to doing, and then how Clay Helton handles being the probably number one hot seat coach in all of America. And then how they handle uh, what other schools, what other teams, excuse me, uh, uh, media think of USC. How are they going to talk about USC? How are they going to factor in USC? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to uh, how this uh, how this all goes together tomorrow. It's something we haven't seen. Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. I wonder how much if they'll be on the hot seat as far as other media asking them tough questions or if it's going to be an easier day because it's, you know, general media. But I was going to ask you, Dan, you kind of already covered it, but your expectations for tomorrow, Wednesday, Clay Helton will be accompanied by Michael Pittman and Christian Rector. As far as Clay Helton goes, what are you going to ask him? And second, how much do you take Clay's word for what it is at this point? We've we've heard him use kind of hyperboles around the team at certain points of, during different seasons. What are you taking away from what he might say tomorrow? Well, I think it's important to hear Clay talk about what what really is his takeaway from last year. I know there are times we've heard him say, you know, with just a you know a score here and a score there and a score here. And, and it's not really all that bad a season. And, and, and I'm not sure that's exactly the right answer. Uh, but um, I, I would like to also find out where did Clay, you know, go? Uh, who did he talk to in the off season? And what, what did he, you know, what did people suggest for him? And what, you know, where were some of the, you know, the people that, that he really depended on to give him some, 
you know, feedback on what they saw with the USC team and, and what has to happen and where, where it has to go. And how are things going to change? I mean, you know, you change the offensive coordinator, you change a lot of the defensive people, but how are they going to change, especially when they get into the season, when the team has a tendency to kind of fade off and where it's more, uh, looks more like, uh, you know, classroom workout on the field instead of really competing and being physical and fast and, 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 and developing some real sense of toughness. And, um, and and no matter how much the offense improves, what are they going to do about defense? What are they going to do to get the defense to be the kind of – I mean, when, when USC turned things around, they turned it around, I think, uh, you know, back with Pete, uh, with their defense. Now, they had an awful lot of uh, stars arrive fairly quickly on offense. But, um, uh, you know, that was a, a, a physically tough, mean – uh, edgy uh, football team, and and people didn't want to play USC. Uh, how do they get that back? You know, I mean, you can work on having officials there and um, and getting rid of the penalties and and work on turnovers instead of just four interceptions. Maybe you know you really you know play the ball better and you do a lot of things like that. But how do they get tougher? How do they get to be that team that people don't want to play? A team that, you know, that really plays punishing football. We haven't seen much of that lately. Um, and how do they get that to be that team that the teams that you play respect you and say, man, I don't know if I want to play those guys. Uh, is, is, you know, what do you do to get that back, Clay? How do you get there from here? And I, I'll be interested to hear, you know, what he has to say. I know last season at the end, you one of your things that you kept saying was you don't even know if they have the right questions to ask about themselves. Do you think that they've they've turned that corner in this off season during this the the spring and the off season? I don't know. I mean, I think they certainly got it right when they realized. I mean, I had been saying I think all year long that they needed to be kind of an air raid type team because of the talent and. And the basic, you know, the recruiting base in California that's always going to be there, and you know the receivers they had last year, and and a quarterback who kind of played that style in high school, and um, and they finally got there with the uh, Notre Dame game, and JT just went, you know, off with, you know, whatever it was, 352 yards passing, and you know, except for a couple of turnovers in that USC's really, uh, you know, in that game, uh, you know, against the, you know, playoff-bound Notre Dame team. So um, so I think they figured out some of the right directions to go, but have they figured out, you know, the things they can't do uh, and that they must not do and that they must really coach against uh, and all of that? Or, you know, was that a, was that a sense of just saying, Hey, we got a quarterback with a really good arm and can make all the throws. We got a bunch of receivers. Our offensive line doesn't block all that well. Uh, maybe we ought to just do this. So, you know, was that a result of, of 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 getting the questions right, or was that just a result of looking and saying, "Well, we got these guys. Let's let them do what they do." I don't know. Uh, I think that's a very good question, and I think the question also applies to defense. Um, what do we do? What you know? What do we do? There is the question they have to ask themselves: How do we handle this 
uh, is what Clancy Pendergrass ought to, you know, needs to be saying. Here's the players I have. What can I do with them? And how can we be much more dependable than we were um, than we were last year? You know, how do we avoid, for example, that just abomination of a US UCLA game where they couldn't stop one guy and one run? And, it, you know, in a game where you really would have thought you'd have been ready to play. So, you know, there are a lot of those questions that we don't know if they're – you can get the answer sometime even if you don't ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to find out if it's the result of, uh, of just – looking at your personnel and saying this is what we need to do or really asking the right questions. Uh, I don't know that we know that. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Now, with Pac-12 Media Day comes the media guide, which usually includes some newsier items. And one of those items was the the final chapter in Daniel Matabebe's essential story at USC. Uh, He was listed as a squad member lost. Uh, So he's a redshirt senior, but he will not be playing at USC Dan, what do you take away from, you know, this final ending to the Daniel Marbebe saga? I don't know. Just think of all the times. If you try to add up all the times we were told he was working his way back and he was getting closer. And I would guess, what, 30, 40 times we've heard that over the last couple of years. And now he's gone and nothing. Nobody said goodbye. Nobody said he's not coming back or all those things we were telling you over all those years, forget him. He's gone. Nothing. It's just poof. Uh, it probably would have, you'd have liked to have seen more than his, you know, him not being in the media guide, and I guess he's listed under starters missing or whatever, starters lost or whatever category. I don't even know what category they you know, counted him. Uh, for the last two years, but uh, but it is kind of weird to just have him. Yeah, he's not here anymore. Yeah, goodbye. Well, you know, and they don't. He didn't get a goodbye. He just he he just got. You know, he just disappeared, as they say. And and I yeah, think the, that's a little odd, right? And I think the last visual we really saw of him on the field was on Howard Jones Field doing some workouts and. I think Clay Helton was pretty encouraged by that that workout we saw, and then nothing happened after that. It's just an odd story, and I've heard that there is a story to it. I think Daniel is trying to be respectful of everyone involved. Uh, I th- it seems like the story will come out at some point. It's just a matter of when, but it's an odd situation all around. Yeah, and I mean, and we understand he's going to get his degree by the end of the summer. Does he end up somewhere else? I don't know. I mean, you know, he's still got eligibility. Uh, does he give it a try? I don't know. Um, does he, you know, join his brother at, at Illinois? I don't know. Uh, yeah, really, kind of a sad story with all the, you know, the potential that that he had, and to have, you know, none of that realized. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, made some plays. Probably the biggest. Um, uh, win regular season win in, in Clay Helton's career, and uh, the biggest road win uh, was that game at Washington. And Daniel made some plays in that game and um, showed you a little glimpse of, of what might be, and now it's a glimpse of what never will be. 
for him, you know, as a USC Trojan. Um, and it's kind of a kind of sad. Uh, I know that's a tough injury, but uh, uh, I know USC had hopes that they would see him again, and and that's not going to be. Yeah. We did also get some more news out of the media guide, and it's news specifically for us as journalists. Uh, there's a different change to USC's practice regulations for the media this season. So fall camp will be open for the media. Uh, we will be able to see the whole practice, but once it gets into the regular season, uh, we'll only be able to watch the first 20 minutes of the Tuesday and Wednesday practices, uh, and we'll only hear from Clay Helton on Tuesday and Thursdays. Thursday's practices are closed, and they have been for a little bit, a little, uh, a little while. Changes for us for sure. Dan, you and I do instant analysis based on what we see in every practice. You do ghost notes. How much is this a, a change for us, and how much does that affect our coverage? Well, I mean, one of the good things maybe in doing ghost notes is we tried to do those this summer, uh, having been shut out of uh, of Loker Stadium, where we used to be able to watch, uh, you know, on Howard Jones Field. So you had to become a little more creative and figure out a little other ways to see what you see or interpret it or whatever. So uh, there'll always be that, you know, where you you got to adjust and, uh, and and it's hard to be upset in general because we had more access with USC than any other major program in the country. So even with the Thursday uh, you know, situation last year, you still had uh, a much more sense of how things were going and why and, and all of that. We're not going to, after the first two weeks, when they tend to you know, be pretty competitive and fast-paced and physical and all that, and, and, and a, a continuation of spring, which we really liked and, and liked their approach to things and understood that, you know, they had a lot of injuries on defense, so they weren't going to push it there. Uh, but we've always felt like that the uh, the issue with USC tends to come when they start getting ready for games, and uh, and that'll be the the second two weeks of the fall when they you know have the mock game week and then game week. We really won't get to see um, you know what what happens then and how they how they approach things, and, you know, we're certainly going to have to, you know, be very, uh, you know, inquisitive of the players. And uh, we're going to need a lot of help uh, from the uh, sports information department who, you know, because of the fairly open uh, open practices and ability to grab players after practice and things like that, um, you were able to, you know, stay on top of things and, and it, it went pretty smoothly and didn't need a whole lot of work by the, uh, you know, sports information people. It's going to take a lot more work from them now, and that's going to be interesting. It's going to take longer. Uh, after practice, won't be as uh, quick and efficient as it was before, because if you can't see practice, you really have to be able to talk to every player that you need to talk to. And I'm going to be interested in seeing how. USC handles that and how, how they facilitate that because there's going to be much more demands on, on the sports information people and it's um, uh, going to be interesting to, to watch how that works and it's going to be interesting for USC if, uh, you know, if things maybe don't go as well in certain areas, uh, you know, people might revert to, well, that's how they practiced last year. They must be doing it again. And let's say you're there uh, as the media, you're able to say, no, 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 they, they really are hitting it, you know, the way they have to, and, and I, we don't see the failing there. 
uh, if we're not there, we, you know, they won't have our witnesses. You know, we won't be able to be witnesses. Now, I know they're probably not happy with the way we witnessed some of what was going on last year, but kind of reflected a lot of what the players were thinking about how maybe they weren't getting prepared, you know, for game tempo and game speed and game pressure and, and game physicality and all of that in practice. I think I don't think there's any question that we were right about that, that they weren't, and they knew it. And, um, and I think spring, you know, showed that, that they went after it uh, in, a, in a different way. But, uh, but yeah, it's going to be a little challenging uh, for us to, to figure out uh, how to get the most possible good information, uh, you know, to viewers and readers and all of that. And, uh, and I think we will, but, uh, but we're going to have to work at it. It's going to be different. And uh, it's going to be a lot more based on the players' uh, take on how practice went and what they did and what they accomplished and how they feel like, you know, are we getting better? I mean, in the spring, the thing I liked the best is I thought the players came out of every practice thinking they were better and farther along than before that practice. That's really important. And so I think we'll have to, you know, just keep pursuing that, you know, day after day after day and, and, and see what we can, uh, what we can get out of that. But, uh, but we had a good run. And it was, you know, wonderful all those years, you know, with Pete and all those national, you know, contenders and, and getting to see all those, you know, all Americans and how they practice and how hard they practice. And um, it was uh, it was great, uh, you know, to be able to see that. Uh, and I'm not sure, I guess the thing you hope is that no one at USC thinks there's a connection to getting the team better preparing better, practicing better, playing better with whether or not there are media people in that little media pen to the left of the, uh, the goo gate there. Uh, uh, hopefully there's nobody there that says, now that they're not here, we're going to practice better or we're going to play better. Or people won't, you know, have an idea of who we're going to be. You know, they won't be given out. I mean, I don't think – I think one time, and maybe 18 years, I think one time was any one media person ever accused of giving something away to an opponent. I mean, once, one time, that's it. So uh, that never, you know, was a problem. So, uh, so I'm not sure, you know, what the uh, rationale is other than everybody else does it this way or you're lucky you get 20 minutes, you know, some places they don't give you any time. Uh, other than that, let's hope there is no other rationale than that. But it's going to be an adjustment. Yeah, it'll be different for sure. But you mentioned the motive. I was going to ask you, what do you say to the people who think that this is a direct effect of maybe us being more critical of USC's practices last season or an effort of USC trying to almost lick their wounds and kind of close out those that could be critical of them? I don't know. I mean, I would think, for example, in the spring, we couldn't have been more, we couldn't have praised them anymore, you know? I mean, uh, so basically we're going to tell you what we see and how it's working. And I don't think there's anybody that ever said we weren't accurate or on the money or it didn't help you to understand maybe what was coming, uh, you know, in our, uh, you know, the way we talked about practice. And, uh, 
I think there are times that you probably wish that somebody got the message, um, but it, it just seemed like they were in a, you know, a, a kind of a whirlpool, you know, just heading down, and they just couldn't get out of it, and they just couldn't figure their way out of it last year. Um, but uh, uh, as far as, uh, you know, I don't know that it's so much like a personal thing. I think USC is in a place right now where I think they probably, uh, the whole university, the athletic department, football, feel like they're besieged by people, you know, coming in from the outside and second-guessing them or criticizing them or whatever. And I think, unfortunately, at USC, as open as it's been in football over these years, there's a tendency, has been a tendency at the university to kind of uh, circle the wagons and uh, get into a protective bubble and kind of act like, well, if we're all just shut everything out, nobody can hurt us. Nobody will bother us. You know, we're, we're USC, and we know what we're doing, and we know we know what we're doing, and if we don't let anybody else, you know, in on it, they can't criticize. Well, that's not the way it works. They can't criticize, and you can go wrong. You know, there are a lot of things that have happened the past few years at USC that you wish USC would have listened to that voice saying, uh-uh, I don't think this is working. I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think USC tended to shut those people out if those people were, you know, saying things like that. And they'd probably be in a whole lot better place right now if they'd have listened to some of those people at all levels, not just football. But uh, <clears throat> that hasn't been the USC way. USC's gotten to be awfully big and awfully powerful and awfully successful and, you know, largest employer in, you know, Los Angeles County and all of that. Um, and yet is, you know, is that the way you want to go, or do you want to start listening to people outside and, you know, making making adjustments maybe, or saying, you know what, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we need to listen to people more. And, um, yes, the tendency recently has not been to listen to people from outside, and this is another way that they don't have to as much. Because basically you have to listen to them, tell you what happened at practice, and you know what they think of it and there's really no no place for you to say hmm that's not what i saw um that's not what i think or whatever now it'll all be based on uh, you know do you show up on saturday and how do you do and ultimately that is you know the response that matters the most but uh but it'll be different and you have a series called We Read Them, so you don't have to. You covered what Phil Steele had to say about USC uh, this season going into 2019. What do you have to say, Dan? Well, he's kind of a, of a couple of different minds. I mean, he's uh, he had him, he had him ranked uh, 24th in overall power, which is his. He's got nine different ways of analyzing teams. You know, from you know the total experience to I mean, all the kinds of you know how do teams bounce back after bad seasons. He's got USC fairly high there as uh, uh, on his most improved list, and uh, I think also maybe his his bull market list or whatever. He he does so many different ways of analyzing uh, uh, analyzing players uh, and and teams. Um, I guess the thing I think he's he's very 
upbeat about uh, what will happen to the offense and with JT Daniels, but then he doesn't pick them to, you know, score more than a couple of points more a game, but he picks them to have the, I think, the number two pass offense in the country. So <clears throat> I'm not sure I, all of the pieces fit exactly. I mean, he's the best because he's the one guy who does every single bit of analysis on every single team, you know, more than a million words. And he's, uh, he really, you know, dependable in so many ways, but, you know, it's just, just hard maybe to keep everything, um, you know, in line. I, I thought one of his comments about USC is this is a team that looks really good getting off the bus. <laughs> but uh, uh, he said he's been waiting a long time and didn't know if he'd ever get to do it put USC on his uh, most improved list uh, because of where they're coming from at, at five and seven. Uh, he does pick up on, I think Ben Griffith is one of his, uh, you know, picks is, uh, you know, guys coming that they're going to impact and, 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 you know, have that kind of a season. So he picked up on Ben Griffin. I, I, I thought he, uh, He's got Jay Tufelli as a second-team All-American, which I think you know a lot of people have, have jumped on the, the Jay Tufelli bandwagon. He's got Jay as the number three tackle in the country, uh, defensive tackle. He's got USC uh, highly ranked at the wide receiver position and at the defensive uh, defensive line. He's got USC as the number 11 quarterback group in the country, and I, I had seen er, earlier. Some people ranked the Pac-12, and they had uh, USC as number six or seven at quarterback. He's got them a lot higher than that. So, uh, so again, uh, you can you know take all these rankings, and, and they won't mean all that much once we get into you know once we get teams actually playing. Um, looks like he probably would would say they're up for like an eight and four eight and four season. He really likes Utah, and um, and he's got three other teams though that he likes better than USC in the in the Pac-12 <coughs> with Oregon and uh, I'm trying to think. He, Stanford, he's got them above USC in some places and, and below USC in other places. Uh, I think he thinks the tough schedule might hurt USC more than then maybe it'll hurt Stanford uh, at the end. He's got USC going to the Las Vegas Bowl. The good news there is Las Vegas. Second piece of good news there, it's December 21st, so it's over early. But in playing Boise State. But, again, you know, it's it's not the bowl you, you want to be going to. Maybe in the future, and they're playing in the new Raiders Stadium, state-of-the-art, uh, after this year, but uh, it's probably not the probably not the bowl game uh, you would like to see uh, USC going to uh, this year. So, so that's uh, kind of the highlights and the lowlights of what uh, what Phil sees about USC. Good stuff for sure. And I heard Dan, you have an article in the works today. Yeah, I'm just uh, for uh, first time ever the Pac-12 not only asking uh, media for predictions, I think three per per program. And so not only going to ask for uh, how do you think they're going to finish in the south and north and south and who's going to win the overall championship, but they're also asking for uh, uh, preseason all-conference teams and, 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 and going with the first and second team. So I'm going to 
I'm going to throw that out there for everybody to see before it's revealed uh, what the official uh, teams are tomorrow and the official uh, uh, predictions for how the Pac-12 is going to finish. And um, my guess is mine won't uh, be as similar. Uh, mine won't you know, reflect where the general media is. I think I'm a little biased having seen spring practice and, again, having been familiar with the level of talent USC recruits, is I'm going to, you know, and nobody knows for sure how this is all going to play out for anybody, you know, in the Pac-12. But I have a tendency to say that I think it could play out well for, for USC, as it should, considering uh, uh, that USC has, uh, has a lot of talent coming in, uh, even after last, uh, you know, last year, with their lowest class ever, although they that changes with uh, with uh, you know Chris Steele and uh, and Brew McCoy coming back, uh, but um, but USC still has far and away the most talent in the Pac-12 in terms of when they walk through the door, uh, where they are now, that's on USC to some extent uh, and the players, but um, but I think they have a chance. I, I just have a sense that. That you know they're going to um, show up pretty well in the Pac-12 this year, and they ought to. I mean, it's the Pac-12, and they're USC. So, uh, so I'll, that'll be the the story that that'll, that I'm going to put out, so people will be able to see that before they see what the official what the official results of the preseason polls are uh, tomorrow at Pac-12 Media Day. Cool. It's like a little sneak peek. It's like. When you yeah, open a present yeah. on Christmas Eve, get a, get a little taste before the, the real thing. The people that don't like USC, the USC fans who really want to see them go down will not probably like my predictions, but uh, they they got to have to live with it. <laughs> we'll see. Or I will have to live with it. True. We'll see what happens. That's the big question. We'll see. Uh, before we get into questions, I just want to thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's. Last week, I had Keeley's Corner, where I was recommending things. Unintentionally, my dad texted me his recommendations. He doesn't know that I'm telling the world his recommendations, but he loves the Thai rice and uh, the frozen burritos that you can warm up pretty quickly and the, the Chinese food that you can also warm up. So those are my dad's recommendations. Trader wow. Joe's are always a, a good, uh, easy, quick meal if you need it. I'm sure my dad will be embarrassed by me putting his recommendations out there, but uh, good things from Trader Joe's all around. I'll tell you what, you, you mentioned last week there are one, two, three uh, items, uh, and that fits me to a T. Uh, the uh, uh, wine and cheese, and that sounds like I'm, you know, one of these uh, Newport Beach types, uh, <laughs> and then flowers. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's kind of where I am. I'm like the, you know, I'm like the Trader Joe's uh, perfect uh, uh, demographic. Uh, I go for... I go for the things that uh, Trader Joe's sells the uh, most of. You're the, you're the classy type, Dan. Whatever they Trader Joe's philosophy is, or thinking, or how they how they approach things, that's where I am. That that makes sense. I mean, you're you seem like a Trader Joe's guy, Dan. Uh, without a doubt. <laughs> well, let's get into some questions. First, we have a question from Troy Trojan. He says. Seeing that the kids are responding to a voice and style in Aaron Osmus that seems to be aggressive and demanding, do you think Clay Helton will pick up on this and adjust his coaching style, or do you think he will continue his passive approach? Seems like he allows his other coaches to yell and scream, and when that coach is not looking, he runs over and loves up on the player. That player then thinks as long as he has Helton in his corner, he can do no wrong. This mixed signal coaching style will ultimately get him 
fired. Thoughts? I mean, I think that's, you know, a big, a big you know, key question is, you know, where is that line? And I think, I think the way the assistants are coaching, I think they're making it pretty hard to go there. I mean, I, I, I would find it very difficult to uh, see another situation where just because, uh, you know, a coach is really uh, enamored of a player for all kinds of good reasons that he's allowed to play a position that he can't play. Uh, you know, and the snaps last year were a, a big example of that. And I, I, I can't even, even if you'd have made an agreement with somebody that will let you play there and it'll help you get to the NFL and all that, you just can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, and I would think that's off the table a bit. That the coaches, uh, the assistant coaches, the position coaches seem to have more autonomy. And I think Clay knows that that's the way it almost has to be. Um, so I think the big question I think with Clay is uh, setting the tone for practice and how how hard do they go at it, and how much, and you know how you know how long, and how, you know day to day, and how all of that. How much do you push them? How much do you push them and say to yourself, what I want them to do? is the day after we win a championship or the day after we win um, or the day after the NFL draft or the day after, you know, they graduate, that's when they really come back and say, boy, coach, I really, really admire you. Thank you so much. But I don't know if I want them saying that walking off the field on after Wednesday's practice. I, I think I'd, I'd rather have them saying that so-and-so can't believe he's making us do this kind of stuff you know that's what i'd like to have happen during the year and then afterwards come back and say boy he pushed us so hard look at what it did for us look at how good you know we became we were better than we even thought we could be because he really pushed us that's how i'd like to see it work out now how that balances out you know between you know those things I mean, again, I just don't think you want them liking you in no pads November. No way. You know? Maybe uh, second week of January you want them liking you, but you don't want them liking you in no pads November. So that's the essential tension, I think, that exists for uh, a Clay Helton coaching, Clay and his staff. I think that's, that's where this, uh, a lot of this is going to be determined, by how that plays out. And I think there's also an internal tension with Clay Hilton because he is naturally, I think, just a player's coach. That is his nature, and I don't think he will ever be able to fully stray away from that. But I do think there is a common misconception that Clay is this passive guy that quietly talks on the field and never raises his voice. Like from day one of Clay Hilton being the head coach, He's been an angry guy on the sideline during games, screaming at refs, screaming at players. I remember even a, an instance in spring camp where he got everyone down and had multiple expletives shouting at them because uh, they were down on one knee because someone got into a fight. You know, things like that where Clay Hilton does have that mean streak, but the, it's almost like parenting. When you then follow it up with something more passive or like uh, – uh, Troy Trojan said something where there are no consequences for actions or bad snaps, etc. Does that 
screaming really do anything? Is it really effective? And I think that's the internal tension between Clay Hilton and his approach to his players. Yeah, I think that's a good way to explain it, that internal tension. I think it's what decision do you make? Do you make a decision saying, oh, I want this kid to like me. I don't want to be me. Or do you say, you know what, for this team, for the sake of this team, we have to do this. I don't care if you don't like me. This is what my job is to get the team ready. And we've got to be disciplined. We've got to do things together. And if you choose to go off somewhere else and not do it that way, there will be consequences. And you might not like me. And that's probably a good thing because I need you to not like me if that's what makes this, as, makes this a better team. I think that's the internal tension that has to exist with Clay, and I think he has to come down on the side of whatever it takes to make this a better team, obviously within reason of you know, some things you can't do even if they would make it a better team. But uh, I just think you have to be – you've got a job. You're not the chaplain, you know. You're the head coach. You've got different responsibilities, um, and that's where. It's, but that's the tension that, that's going to exist this year, and it's going to be interesting. I thought he handled it well in the spring, but it's a whole another level of of what you have to handle uh, in the fall when you've got different teams coming at you every week, and you've got to balance that. Whether you are, how hard do I push them? Do I push them? You know, to the point where, you know, practices are harder than the games. I mean, that's never been a charge, uh, you know, to, for Clay Helton. I don't think we've ever heard, boy, the practices are harder than the games. With Pete Carroll, again, this isn't Clay Helton against Pete Carroll. This is just coaching styles. But the players felt like they practiced harder than they were even required to play in games, and that gave them a confidence going into games and a confidence at the end of games that they were going to prevail. If you don't practice that hard and the players say, holy crap, this is going faster and this is much more physical than we do at practice, you leave them at a place where they're not as confident when they get into those games. And I thought, oh, uh, uh, Phil Steele, one of the most interesting things that Phil picked up on <coughs> USC lost four games last year where they had a double-digit lead. That's, wow. almost, that's almost impossible. How do you do that? And that's the thing where when you hear, oh, we lost a couple games by one touchdown, it's just a couple changes that we need to make. It's, it's stats like that that really go against that narrative that I think has kind of taken over since essentially signing day. And that's when we ask, are they, do they know the questions? Do they have the right answers? That's where my, my, my eyebrows kind of raise yeah. because it doesn't seem like that's the case. Well, I think the players do. I mean, I, I think Clay has a tendency to want to put the best face on things. I don't think there's yeah. any question yeah. about it. Uh, again, internally, does he really believe they were that close? Because, you know, oh, yeah, obviously you could have, would have, should have beaten Arizona State and Cal at home. Uh, those games, without a doubt, shouldn't have been losses. You hold Stanford to 17 points, you ought to beat Stanford. Come on. You know, I mean, they're just – and UCLA. 
I mean, come on. Again, they got one play, and you, and you don't even show up ready to play. What's that? That's four games. Gee, that's kind of like nine and three. However, you know, there were other you know places where things could have gone really bad, you know, for USC, and, and they didn't. Um, but you shouldn't kid yourself. And we're, you know, you're USC, and you're playing in the Pac-12, the worst of the Power Five conferences. You ought to do well. So <clears throat> looking back against in games against teams you really should have beaten um, handily, and, and and saying, well, it wasn't that bad. No, it was that bad. Let's go to an email from Ralph and Folsom. And, and Dan, he actually has some constructive criticism for you, so we'll see how this goes. But okay. he says, Dan, you know I'm a fan of your stuff, but you're really starting to get more strident and derisive of those who have a different view of JT Daniels than you. You deride us fans who couldn't possibly know as much as you. I chuckled when you criticized the USC administration on the past podcast for doing the same thing you're doing, i.e. claiming that those who, who disagree with you are wrong and poorly informed. So I have questions. Can you tell us what you saw in games last year, not practice, that has you salivating to CJT this year? I can't think of much. Granted, he didn't get much help. I do recall very vividly how twice he slid a yard short of a first down on third and short when he didn't really have to. Have you ever stopped to consider that you are wrong, even though I hope you aren't? I'm not saying Jack Sears is the second coming, but JT hasn't shown me that he is much more than a very hyped high school quarterback. I'm happy to be shown, not told, differently. Thanks, Ralph and Folsom. Well, I mean, I think you've got to listen to, say, Jordan Cameron, who's coached some really good quarterbacks, one by the name of Sam Darnold, who Jordan said basically in high school, before he was out of high school, um, JT Daniels, could do more things than Sam could, could make more throws, had more ability to do a whole lot of things than Sam did. Then you check with Sam, and Sam agreed. So <clears throat> people who worked out with him for the last you know, few years, who know him the best, will tell you that he's got all, you know, all the tools. For example, I don't know that it's been highly publicized. Um, JT comes back to uh, Pac-12 loaded with quarterbacks, Heisman candidates. Uh, you know, Justin Herbert, Oregon. You know, high you know power tra- uh, transfers, all kinds of you know talent. And JT had uh, 13 touchdown passes of 40 yards or more. Nobody's really close. I mean, he's he can do some things with the football. Uh, and he got, you know, kind of one of these photographic minds that would, you know, it takes you know, voluminous notes and, you know, probably to his detriment last year because he was trying to figure out how to make an offense work that the coaches didn't have any idea how it worked. I thought he did wonderfully. What did he do last year? He had the best game against Notre Dame of any quarterback all year. I mean, he had a, a, a terrific game against Notre Dame. I'm not sure if people were watching that game or not. I was at 352 yards and 72% uh, pass completions against a pretty good defense. So uh, it's not like people are just saying, you know, he just, you know, pulling him out. Of, you know, I mean, people watch him in high school, for example. High school, he uh, advances his senior year. So he ends up in the uh, Army All-American game, and where Trevor Lawrence had trouble adjusting 
and, and, and getting the offense in, in a week. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, who everybody says, oh, my God, he's just the best thing at all because he's a Clemson. Uh, and JT comes into that game and is by far the best quarterback in the game. Uh, he's got a lot of, a, a lot of talent. I mean, it just, and, and I think what I object to are the my personal attacks of people who can't possibly know what they're saying negatively about JT. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, come after you, but to say that you didn't see anything last year that JT did, I mean, just surviving in that gumbo offense, I mean, it was impossible, uh, you know, to figure out what you were supposed to do. And to not know, you know, they couldn't run the ball. You didn't know where pressure was going to come with the offensive line, and you have to play soccer goalie for the snaps. So you couldn't even, <clears throat> like, you know, what one of JT's skill sets would be the ability to, to survey the defense and quickly decide where, where we're going to be able to go. Well, he couldn't do that because he had to have his eyes completely on the football you know, a lot of the you know shotgun quarterbacks just have their hands there, and the ball gets there, and they've got their heads up, looking down the field, and and seeing where the defense is going, uh, which is what you've got to do in this offense. I mean, I think he's he's you know going to be just not having to you know locate those 25 snaps over the season that were everywhere but where they should have been. So uh, so I thought he got a bum rap. So I think some of my reaction to people saying negative things about him were I thought they tried to blame JT for things that weren't JT's fault at all. Yeah, he's a freshman. My goodness, he's a freshman for USC, uh, you know, in a really difficult situation. And I thought he probably should have gotten more, more credit for handling it and surviving in it and coming back week after week after week. Uh, for an offense where the coaches didn't know what they wanted to do or how they wanted to do it and, and practiced it not all that effectively. So, uh, so that was more my, uh, my reaction to people who I, I thought, uh, I know they weren't being fair, to be honest. It's, just, it's that simple. And I think he's um, he got a lot of skills. But, I, you know, I thought uh, Jack Sears played wonderfully well. And he got, I think, he helped point out where USC needed to go, because that week they cut the offense in half, knowing you know that you were going to have a, a first-time starter and uh, and an offense that was really difficult to make. So they cut it in half, and that that did wonders. I mean, that showed you the direction where they're going now with the, you know the 18 basic pass plays and the four four running plays, and that they repeat and repeat and perfect and perfect. I think that's the direction. That, that they're going now, but that actually helped uh, in that game with Jack. I thought he, uh, you know, uh, I thought he, he benefited from an offense that was cut down, and he didn't have to run the, you know, the traditional, you know, gumbo thing that they were showing up with most weeks. So, uh, so I just, you know, I, I just thought, you know, JT hung in there, did things that you don't expect a freshman to have to do, and for people not to see that, for people to say, you know, just throw it open and whoever, <clears throat> and you think, wow, you've got a kid who has 11 starts, 11 difficult starts that 
developed the kind of maturity, and there are people who just cavalierly say, yeah, yeah, we don't need that. That experience doesn't matter. Let's start over again from scratch. I'm just not sure that's the way, uh, you know, to success. And, again, I just think it's, you know, not treating, uh, not treating JT fairly. But it isn't a matter of, you know, like this guy or that guy. I mean, I think whoever starts, USC will be better off, you know, for it. And I think, you know, the competition is great. And uh, I think they're coaching them up really well. I mean, I, I couldn't have any more confidence in Graham Harrell. But, uh, but I'm not sure people should be forming their opinions based on what they, you know, saw or didn't see uh, last year where, where JT got a lot of the blame. Uh, so that's where I am. There you have it, Ralph. There's your rebuttal from Dan. Let's go to an email from Michael Maloney. He says, what are USC's quarterbacks wearing on their chest? Looking at pictures and video from the PRPs, I see JT Daniels wearing what looks like a small sports bra that goes over his shirt. What is it? It looks laughable. Oh, man. Okay. They're wearing the catapult system, which uh, uh, transfers all of the you know, data in terms of how many you know, miles they run and, and how uh, you know, the heartbeat and all that kind of stuff uh, uh, so that they've got a, uh, you know, a record on, uh, you know, can compare it. And, and, and I think, it, you know, I think in regular practice, everybody wears them. Uh, in the summer, only some of the guys, you know, are wearing them. And in regular practice, you don't see them. Uh, but, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's called the catapult uh, system. And, it, uh, you know, where they just it transfers the, all the readings, uh, uh, you know, of their, uh, you know, of each player. And you can get an idea of, you know, how hard they're working and how much energy, you know, they're using and, and all kind, you know, all kinds of data that it reads, you know, their heartbeat and respiration and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's the, uh, that's where football is going. And uh, I, I see we're used to seeing it. So we, it doesn't register on us that, that that looks all that unusual, but I could see how for somebody who hasn't seen those before, it's like, what the heck is that? That that looks kind of looks kind of weird, and uh, it, it you know it's really I think now we don't know I don't know how they use the follow up on it and all that. I mean I think they know for each guy, you know they get a profile, practice after practice after practice, um, and. Uh, I think it could be really valuable in terms of, you know, how hard are we pushing them, how hard is too hard, uh, and all of that. But uh, but they've got all that data. It's amazing how much, uh, you know, data that, that they have. Yeah, and I know that they use it for when guys have injuries. It's a good way to track how much uh, they're exerting over the week versus what they want them to, to do on Saturday. So maybe dial it back a little bit and you have a specific quantitative way to see how they're dialing it back. But my favorite fun fact about uh, the catapult system is that when they first in- instituted the catapult system, they realized that during their warm-ups, their pregame warm-ups, the amount of exertion that they had was equal to a whole half of a football game. And so if you actually look at the timing of how long they practice uh, before in the early days of catapult versus now, they actually shortened their warmups pregame by a lot. I think it's now 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And before it was around 30 minutes. And so that's all based off of the, the catapult data and what they found from that. I guess the, 
the good news is we figured out we're we're spending too much time or too much energy in pregame or whatever. The bad news might be we're not putting out enough energy during the game. Uh, I don't know how the uh, you know you could read that uh, both ways, but but it did you know it did certainly uh, have them cut back on pre pregame, which I don't think was a bad thing. Uh, however, you would like it to also help you amp up what you're doing uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday so that when you get to the game, you have the ability to uh, immediately, you know, from the you know, first whistle to uh, immediately be going at your, at your peak. Yeah, that would be a, a smart application for sure. Uh, we have an email from Jim B. who says, Wonderful podcast. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Jim. He says, I keep hearing that SC has a rough time bringing in the great O-linemen and D-linemen because we don't seem to breed those four and five stars here on the West Coast like they do in the Southeast, Midwest, and East. I remember Nebraska under Bob Devaney and especially Tom Osborne. They used to bring in these farm boys and develop them into great linemen in the weight room. They had a great weight and conditioning and nutrition program. I remember Nebraska under Osborne just running right at people. The other team knew exactly what was coming, and they still couldn't stop them. Why can't USC do that? Outside of your speed rushers, O and D linemen don't have that 4-5 speed and a 42-inch vertical leap. Fight on, Jim B. Well, I think um, Nebraska was doing it in a lot of ways back in the day, and it wasn't all the weight room. Uh, they were, um, you know, they had... They were one of the first uh, programs to um, where people figured out that there were extra ways that you could help your body get bigger and stronger, uh, ways in which you're probably not allowed to, to do uh, today. So, uh, I mean, I, only, I know this one of the ways that I covered somebody in the NFL who um, came through the Nebraska program, and um, it's... It, it's probably not the best example nowadays. Uh, the other thing is everybody has a kind of a Nebraska program. Uh, one of the things Nebraska did get ahead of people, they figured out, I stopped in there once in the middle of the summer, they had like 150 guys working out. I remember asking one of the trainers or whatever, I said, what, he said, well, we have kind of two teams. The second team was they were the first school, I think, in the country that realized that there was a whole group of kids who were uh, the kind of kids that that uh, had learning disabilities and needed to take untimed tests and uh, and maybe didn't uh, qualify for NCAA scholarships, but they put in you know majors for kids like that, and those kids would show up at Nebraska and they you know have fifty seventy five walk-ons who were a lot of them really talented kids. I mean, I knew one who went on to become an All-American. Uh, and because they had a major in, in, in the kind of programs for you know learning the kids that had some sort of learning disability, um, they had the ability to move those kids onto the roster after they'd been there a year, and uh, they did that. So they they competed in a lot of different ways at Nebraska, and they were ahead of the curve, and that was amazing. And they were able to recruit you know kids from New Jersey and kids from California who became all American. That can't happen now. Everybody is competing. Everybody's, com- you know, recruiting. Everybody's uh, got, you know, weight programs that they think are really, uh, you know, doing the job. And California is different. I mean, uh, for somebody like me who 
started watching USC, you know, from the Midwest or whatever back in the day. And the thing that I always paid attention to was, you know, USC had this run of big, tall, athletic, offensive linemen. And, you know, and I knew growing up in Cincinnati, you knew about Anthony Munoz, but, you know, Ron Yeri and all the, you know, one after another after another. <clears throat> and you didn't see that in, uh, you know, Ohio State, Michigan, maybe not the same kind of athletes. But, what you know, things go in cycles. And what you see in, in you know, in California where they perfected the seven-on-seven programs and everybody comes to recruit quarterbacks and wide receivers and, defensive backs and all that, but you don't see uh, as many of those offensive linemen. You just don't, and they're not here. And it almost says, you know, does USC have to go with much more of a pass-oriented, you know, game that that kind of works in favor of the kind of talent that's here? Then you have to get, you know, if you get back to where USC was, at that point you can select those uh, linemen, you know, a guy from Florida or a guy from Texas or whatever, uh, but you have to be back on top before you can do that, where you can target one guy and say, you know, you're the guy we need, and you bring in, you know, that, you know, big, strong uh, offensive lineman that you're not, you know, you're not seeing now, and you could do, you know, some more uh, power football kind of stuff. But, but for right now, that's just not, you know, the profile of the players USC, uh, you know, can recruit. And and until they get back on top, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to, you know, beat out a Clemson uh, for one of those kids or beat out an Alabama for one of those kids or an LSU or an Ohio State. It's a, That's a hard, uh, hard slog uh, right now, I think, for USC. Earl in West L.A. says many people on the message boards are besides themselves now that USC has scheduled an FCS opponent. While I can see it is a point of pride to be one of the three schools never to play an FCS school, I can also see the other side of the issue, which, as I understand it, creates the potential for a seventh game to increase revenue from ticket sales, among other things. Also, if only powerhouse programs held this record, it might, and I say might, mean something. However, how significant is this non-FCS scheduling issue if, if it is shared with a program that at best has a mediocre history compared to Notre Dame and USC? I'm guessing this all becomes a big nothing burger if USC returns to championship form. Thoughts, Earl in West L.A. I think, Earl, one of the problems is even the Alabamas and the, you know, the SEC schools who kind of perfected this or even, you know, Ohio State who will play, you know, like a, a lot of mid-American conference schools or whatever, they are kind of being forced to move into a higher level schedule just because the TV people are not happy with, uh, you know, some of these walkover games and the, uh, you know, the students uh, aren't showing up for, for some of those games. And that's in basically captive markets uh in la where you're competing you know against uh ucla la is the only market that has two really major programs in the same city and then you've got you know two recently you know relocated uh big time nfl teams i'm not sure unless you can guarantee you're going to be playoff bound most years uh scheduling uh you know, down to a uh, uh, an FCS program, 
is the way to go. And that's not putting uh, UC Davis down. I think they're a program on the rise. I think they've done a wonderful job. Uh, I think they will be more challenging on the field than, uh, than some of the, uh, the FBS teams. Uh, but because USC shared that distinction, I think, with UCLA and Notre Dame, and the fact that USC is one of the very few schools that has two legitimate arch rivals, and when both of those arch rivals will still have that distinction and USC won't, I think that's a loss. <clears throat> and I don't know that, you know, when you say we, we want to play seven home games a year and you're in a conference that requires you every other year to play uh, just four home conference games and five road conference games, there's almost no way you can get to seven unless you have Notre Dame plus the other two uh, as your home game. And, and I mean, I, I think that's unrealistic. So I thought that was an unrealistic thing for USC to say, well, we want seven home games every year. I don't think you can get there in, and stay in the Pac-12. As long as the Pac-12 requires you to play nine games and every other year you're going to have to play more road games than home games, I don't think that's a legitimate uh, rationale to say, well, Alabama plays seven home games. Uh, and they play not, you know, non-FBS schools, so we should be able to do it. Well, why don't you become Alabama first, okay? And then Alabama's having trouble, uh, you know, making that go. And Alabama's been very creative and figuring out how they could use the, uh, uh, you know, Arlington Stadium, you know, the uh, Dallas Cowboys Stadium or the Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta as home for uh, – Open game, you know, week uh, opening week games that USC is going to be in the second one next year with Alabama, where they get a big uh, payday equal to what a home game would be, and they get a neutral site game, and yet uh, against opponent with a name, and uh, yet they're not like having to go to LA uh, to play back in the day when you know Bear Bryant would bring his team out to play John McKay or John McKay would go to Birmingham play against a, an Alabama team. Uh, so Alabama's been very creative about this, and I think you'd like to see USC you know, be really creative. I mean, there's going to be a, a you know, competition in the L.A. market because uh, UCLA <coughs> has done some wonderful scheduling uh, of, of big-time SEC uh, programs that are going to be coming into L.A. because they like the trip, I think. And they like the you know the Rose Bowl, and they like the fact that UCLA might not be all that good, and so uh, you know it might be harder over the years for USC to get those kinds of games. But uh, I think USC, I would have liked to have seen them go in a different direction. Maybe figure out how can you turn the new Rams Stadium into a opening week, uh, uh, you know, kind of invitational game with uh, a really you know good opponent or something like that where you make a lot of money or uh, do the same thing with the stadium in Las Vegas. And, uh, and maybe go that route where you have six home games and one sort of neutral site game where you get a payday that's like a home game. Uh, that's all. I just thought you know, the, going the UC Davis route, uh, and there were some other uh, FBS opponents open that day, and if USC says you know, that's what we want to do, then maybe you got to be willing to pay them what other schools are paying them. 
And if you've got to figure out a way to sponsor that game or underwrite that game, maybe that's what you have to do. But uh, I just thought it was sort of giving in and, and taking the easy way out. <clears throat> and USC was kind of backed into a corner because, you know, they're doing it for the 2021 season, so that's just two years away. And how USC got got themselves into that situation where the schools knew that they could ask for a lot of money because they didn't think USC had much choice if they wanted to play an FBS team. I'm thinking USC probably shouldn't let themselves get into that position where they're backed into a corner and uh, don't have any other choice. So, so anyway, that's, uh, that's where I think we, we come down on that game. So we have a couple interesting questions from Anonymous, which is uh, intriguing. Uh, they say, as excitement grew this past spring over the naming of the first female drum major in USC band history, it made me wonder which do you believe will happen first. One, the first song boy joins the USC song girls. Two, the first female football player is granted a scholarship to play at USC. Or three, the first female coach, assistant, or head coach is hired at USC. And do you think either of those would receive the same level of excitement as the first female drum major apparently received? And then they put in uh, parentheses, have we crossed a line that should not have been crossed or should it have been crossed a long time ago? So that's from Anonymous. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think you know, anything wrong with uh, you know having a, uh, <clears throat> a female uh, <clears throat> leading the band. I think that's... Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I think that's the way to go. I mean, I think whoever you know does the best job, they have to audition. They got to get you know people to you know vote for them, and got to be able to do all the things you got to do. And uh, uh, I think that's uh, that's perfect. And I know there had been uh, at least one other in the running and uh, uh, at in in previous years. So I think that's that's fine as far as the. Uh, uh, <laughs> A male uh, uh, songboy? I'm thinking not, but who knows the way today is. I mean, you have, uh, you know, um, some of the things that are going on in sports with, uh, let's say, weightlifting, where you can declare that you're a woman uh, and then go out and break all the, uh, you know, women weightlifting records. I'm probably not um, going to go down, you know, down for that. Uh, I know that'll probably get, get, get criticized, but uh, uh, I think it's going to be some interesting decisions that are going to have to be made by athletic federations, uh, you know, the Olympics, the NCAA, what have you, you know, going forward. Or I think, uh, you know, women's sports are going to take a hit if, uh, if uh, you know, we saw, what was it, in Connecticut where, um, you know, trans, uh, you know, males who had declared that they were, you know, transitioning but hadn't gone through any of the surgery or any of that were dominating, uh, you know, track events and, and making it really hard for women or for girls to win in, the, you know, the high school level. I think that's probably not, not a way to go. So, uh, but, man, I wouldn't want to be making the call. If, uh, if some male students show up for the uh, for the song girls auditions, um, I think the most possible one might be uh, an assistant coach. Uh, I know the NBA uh, has you know assistant uh, coaches who are females now, and uh, and maybe uh, you know we'll have you know one as a head coach someday. Uh, so I think that might be more likely than a. Uh, 
been a player. Uh, you would think that would be a kicker, uh, but I'm I'm just not sure at at this level where you could have a a kicker that I've seen so far that you know a truly you know female kicker who who might be able. I'm, I'm not saying you know that won't ever happen, uh, but uh, but I, I'd say coach the coach would be the better. Uh, option. What do you think, Kelly? Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's there's a pathway to be an assistant coach. Um, I the, Her name slips me right now, but there's a assistant coach, I think, I believe on the Arizona Cardinals, or was at some point, uh, who's a female. So I think I that's think just right. a, an easier route to go in the sense where I think people tend to do the, the question of physicality of, of the women's anatomy versus a male's anatomy. And, and I think that's a, a tricky way to go down and, and protecting women versus men, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the, the easiest route is to be an assistant coach or head coach. But I think you, got, you have to see more progression like we're seeing in the NBA right now where, where women are getting a seat at the table. Um, so seeing how that evolves is going to be interesting for sure. I mean – if there was a route to be a female football player, I would have probably taken that. I definitely tried, but I, I ended up here anyway. But that's that's mm-hmm. my take on the on the situation. Well, yeah, and I don't even so people should you know push that. I mean, I just think it's 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 not exactly fair. I mean, uh, who was it? I was reading about you know an all of the hoopla over the women's uh, you know uh, World Cup soccer camps from the U.S. and I guess that team basically played a group of. 15-year-old boys from Texas uh, a year or two ago and got smoked. Uh, it's just not the same sport for the same people. I'd rather watch a women's soccer game than men because the field is more open and there are more, more things happen that I enjoy watching having not been a, you know, an absolute soccer aficionado where the guys can close the field off if they want to uh, as they're playing you know, on the same size field. But... Uh, but I think, uh, um, you know, I don't think people should be, you know, comparing the two. Uh, I mean, I'd rather, probably rather watch, uh, I'd like to move the mound back just a little bit, but I'd probably rather watch uh, women's softball in college than, than, than baseball, uh, even having been a baseball guy. Uh, as far as, I think women's volleyball might be more more fun to watch. There's not quite the you know, the emphasis on strength. It's a sport where it's, uh, it's timing and precision and, and all of that kind of thing. So I think there are ways in which, you know, women's sports are, are really good to watch. Um, but if somebody says, what about basketball? I mean, yeah, there's no comparison. I mean, it's just not much, all that much fun to watch uh, most women's basketball games because they're basically, you, you know, it's a floor-bound game for the women and the men is played in the air, as you would expect. And that's uh, one of the reasons you get a lot more knee injuries, for example, uh, you know, for women, you know, basketball players, because they're on the floor, and when they, you know, collide and whatever, you have a lot more uh, of those kinds of injuries where guys can just kind of jump through an awful lot of the action that, you know, that happens. So, so I'm not, you know, I'm not digging into spending a lot of time you know, comparing or wondering how, you know, how this would work out or how that would work out. Although I do think there is some, you know, political correctness involved in in making some of the judgments about, 
you know, what kind of, uh, you know, definitions should govern who should be playing, you know, in, in male sports and female sports. And uh, I think it can hurt women if that definition is more of a political one uh, than an absolute, you know, biological uh, definition. I just think it's not, you know, fair to female athletes who, you know, are great athletes. And yet they shouldn't have to compete against essentially, uh, you know, people with uh, male physiology. I just think that's probably not fair. Now, I don't want to wade too far into the waters here. (laughs) Um, Right. I'll let you finish that one up. I was just going to add a clarification on the the U.S. women national team. They weren't, it wasn't like it was a, a serious match against the the Dallas 15 year old team it was like a friendly it was a scrimmage where they were letting these prospective players play with this national team so it wasn't like hey let's let's give our best effort and smoke the boys and then they lost it was kind of a a friendly uh not so serious scrimmage so just wanted to to clarify that a little bit yeah and that's yeah and and that's probably fair and if they'd have you know gotten all ready for it they might you know might have turned out differently it's just the fact that I mean, who was it? Uh, Chris Everett, uh, who was by far, you know, with Martina were the best two of their era. And her brother, her younger brother, I think was like the fourth singles player on Auburn's team. And he smoked her. I mean, like, it wasn't even close. I mean, just not like almost win a game. It's just not the same game. It's just not, you know. It's not fair to, I don't think, to try to, you know, do the comparison. It's just, you know, it's just not fair. Let's move on to our last question. Now, before we do, I want to add some context that I actually forgot to mention at the top of the show. Uh, We got confirmation in the media guide that USC is having a fall showcase scrimmage at the Coliseum on August 17th. We had talked about that before previously on multiple podcasts, but we got confirmation about that. It's open to uh, USC fans while fall camp in itself is not open to USC fans. It's free for season ticket holders. And then I believe it's a small fee for those who are not. Um, So that's the context for this, this last question that we have. It's from Richard from Palm Springs. He says, how do you feel about what they're doing to the 1969 and 1994 teams at the so-called football get together in August? I hope this is not the start of great football alumni, not supporting the program. There are a lot of people behind the situation and I hope it does not get worse. I wonder what Lynn Swan will do when his 1972 team comes up to be honored. Thanks Richard from Palm Springs. PS. I enjoy the show. Yeah, Richard, I think that one sort of fell through the cracks. I mean, if you wanted to get rid of the uh, Salute to Troy, and there are good memories and bad memories from the Salute to Troy, and I know this probably wasn't going to be the easiest year to have, uh, you know, have a lot of people show up, um, and we all have the, you know, memories of the, you know, the Sark era uh, Salute to Troy, and it's a lot of work, but uh, I hate to see USC give up on that, uh, the idea of, bringing the two together uh, at the Coliseum, especially, you know, the opening kind of the renovated Coliseum, uh, might not have been a you know, bad idea to actually combine them, really combine them and have sort of a salute to Troy as part of the day and bring in the, you know, 25th and 50th anniversary team. So uh, I know they're 
the last we heard was that they're trying to figure out how to do that uh, with those teams. But, uh, you know, that's kind of a loss, I, I would think. And, um, uh, you know, I, you know, I I hate to see USC giving up on things that, uh, you know, Salute to Troy was kind of unique to USC. I think the jock rallies that they do every, you know, week uh, are unique to USC, uh, as was the scheduling and not having the names on the back of the jerseys and all that kind of thing. I think, you know, all of those things that point out the, you know, historic kind of heritage of, of USC football are good things, and you'd like to see them. Um, you know, stay with those traditions that make you realize that USC football, you know, as a national power, goes back to the 20s and Howard Jones and that, you know, that this is, you know, representative of a whole lot of, uh, you know, college football history here. And you don't want to see them, you know, abandoning things uh, that would be hard to do or maybe, you know, not the most uh you know popular thing coming off of you know, five and seven season and all that and you just want to see <clears throat> people figuring out how to get that done and 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 make it work and uh i think that's a big part of, of what it is to compete in uh you know college athletics at the level usc wants to be successful at and uh, uh i'm not sure we're seeing that as much as we'd like and uh you know, you, you want to see some leadership there and people, you know, saying, hey, we're going to make this work and we're going to get it done. And uh, we're not seeing a lot of that uh, right now. We're just, we're just not. I mean, it's obvious with all the things that have happened, uh, you know, with the um, federal investigation into the college basketball issue uh, two years ago and then this over this last year, the the whole admissions, uh, you know, scam scandal uh, that kind of focused on USC more than anybody in the country. Um, you know, these are some tough times, and you've got to, you know, overcome them and figure out, you know, ways to uh, to say, hey, we're still USC. We're still doing things that, you know, special things that nobody else has, has done and not, you know, turn your back and say, well, we won't do that anymore. Uh, so... So I'm with you, Richard. I um, um, I like I like the showcase idea. I like getting people into the new Coliseum, uh, showing where their seats are, showing off the uh, the tower. Which to me, you know, we made our we made it clear that we didn't think it was worth taking the 10,000 seats away, uh, 10,000 good seats, and we thought there was another way, and nobody listened to us. So, uh, but what they've got there is you know, kind of spectacular for the, you know, the people who can afford to, you know, be in the tower. Um, so I think it's good to show them off and good to have a scrimmage. Uh, I'll be interested in how they handle the scrimmage two weeks, you know, before. Uh, 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 and it's interesting because they say that because August is a dead period, uh, the uh, the public can't come to practice. But then they say, but they can come to this scrimmage, and you think, hmm, what's the difference between, you know, one day that becomes a scrimmage and the rest of August, which is uh, which is a practice? And, you know, um, if they're making it public, it's interesting. You know, Fresno people could come down and watch the 
watch how USC is handling this transition to a brand-new offense, which would probably be of interest to people in Fresno, uh, rather than happen to see it for the first time in the uh, in the game. And how will USC handle that? Will they, you know, show what they're going to do on a in a public scrimmage, or will they not show it and hold it back and yet then maybe not get the full benefit of the scrimmage. It's kind of an interesting you know, conundrum there for, for USC, and uh, we'll be interested to see how they handle that. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a big question about that. An interesting pickle for USC in that sense. Uh, but that's going to wrap up a long, long podcast that we had today on the eve of Pac-12 Media Day. Dan, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? No, I'm going to let the Pac-12 Media Day handle all the rest of it, because that will be way longer than the podcast. True. Uh, a whole lot of talking by a whole lot of people for a whole long time. Very true. And we'll be sure to be on uscfootball.com. We'll have instant analysis. We'll have a lot of news and notes, videos from the day. It'll be a, a, a good day for content. A lot of stuff coming out of tomorrow on Wednesday, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Alrighty, that's going to wrap up today's episode of the Pear Style Podcast. On the eve of Pac-12 Media Day, fall camp just around the corner. The 2019 season is almost here, people. Get ready. But that's going to wrap it up. That's Dan Weber. I'm Keely Orr. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time.